Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are on the record. Every week, this podcast will take you inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, the top deal-making issues, the top tech issues, and the top social responsibility issues, plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports, but having a profound effect on its impact. Let's get started. Sports Professor Rick Harrell inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports. You're on the record. Great week heading to NFL, college, all sorts of football, basketball, hockey, right around the corner. Incredible FedEx Cup ends the golf season, NASCAR as well. We're all here. Deal-making issues three to one. Three. Amazon plots AI features and more sports rights ahead of their second run at Thursday Night Football. Paying a billion a year for Thursday Night Football now, and they have the Premier League rights and NBA linked with the streaming package. They plan to introduce new AI features in its second season as the exclusive broadcaster of the National Football League's Thursday package. Significant moves for their audience. These include Prime Vision simulcast, collated stats, data analytics, from three different sources in overlaid graphics across the all-22 camera, letting fans see every player on the field. It's hard to imagine the first and 10 line was supposed to be the technological innovation of the century. How about that? Two. Peloton targets various sports and college NIL partnerships to expand their reach. University of Michigan is the first college tie-up. They offer college partners co-branded equipment, student discounts and other promotions included. NIL deals focus on student-athlete influencers and connected fitness specialist Peloton plans to partner with universities to bring its technology and software platforms to college campuses and drive adoption among students and alumni. Peloton also sponsors game recaps on Michigan's digital and social platforms. The chief business officer, Champ Sanders says this is a new template, and it certainly is. One. Identiv, which is another collection brand and collect ID, partnered together to increase fan engagement. NFC and blockchain experts will host webinars on advantages of physical merchandise for teams and enthusiastic fans on December 6th. Fidgetal, P-H-Y-G-I-T-A-L, the combo of physical and digital. They connect fan gear like jerseys and scarves with the digital dimension, allowing fans to access exclusive content and other bonus features. Teams benefit from increased awareness and loyalty while learning more about their passionate fan base. Physical merchandise becoming an important way for teams to connect with their most dedicated fans. Excited about the differences. Look at that long term and you realize that the whole collectible area is not far behind. And speaking of that, we have the guru of collectibles. He's a contributor to my sport business handbook and a good friend. Brandon Steiner has been on Yes Network, CNBC, CNN, MSNBC, ESPN, and others. He's been the founder and chairman of Steiner Sports Marketing and Memorabilia, the largest company of its kind in America, considered the guru, not my words, others, and frankly, he's the one to
to provide some perspective on where the industry has been, and maybe more important, where it's going. I give you Brandon Steiner. So let's cut to some of the chase. So, you know, 64 years ago, whatever it is, you're celebrating your first birthday, you're sitting around the table, and you're thinking about a life-changing career in memorabilia when you're at Flatbush there. It doesn't happen that way, but when did you first get the idea that this would be your life work? It's funny. I didn't want to do the collectible thing. I was marketing athletes, which I still do. I mean, I still market a lot of players and, you know, get them for appearances and help, you know, companies grow. But I didn't want to do the collectibles, but it was being done so poorly. And there was so much fake stuff out there. It was driving me crazy. And, you know, I'm a former hard rock guy. I opened up the first hard rock in New York on 57th Street. And, And when I was running that place at night, I was like, wow, this would be cool, but with sports. So uh, that's kind of how it all kicked in as far as me understanding the power of the memorabilia and seeing how all this game used and all these really cool artifacts from celebrities move people because we had all this rock and roll memorabilia. So the sports bar thing, uh, I eventually opened up one of the first sports bars back in 1984 with one of the limited partners in the Yankees, Billy Rose. And then we uh, did this whole memorabilia thing and so when I started Steiner, though, I was just doing marketing and helping people do appearances and then eventually said, wait a minute, I think I need to add on, you know, some autograph stuff to these appearances. So it was really a B2B player, Rick. It wasn't, yeah. I wasn't thinking about building a brand that was going to be this whole ordeal. But then, I don't know, my creative juices started rolling. I started creating all these things, selling bricks, $50 million of dirt, creating all these special products, projects, team signings. I probably produced well over 30, 35 million autographs and then just hundreds of thousands of different unique products. My mind was just just tripping out and I was having a lot of fun. And and particularly because fans, you know, I was doing things that fans really wanted when they went to a ball game. Like how many times have you gone to a game with your kid? You'd love to get second base and give it yeah. to your kid. Right. You know, or, or or just grab maybe the player's cleats and give it to your kid. So and that, while you're I'm at it, acting on the ten-year-old, you know. And while you're at it, let's get Ricky Anderson to sign it for exactly. us, right? Yeah, yeah, I got it. But the interesting thing is, you define something that had no previous ROI. You know, you go everybody's closets and they have trading cards and it's all musty stuff and the flies fly out. But you put a number and you put a business to it. We'll talk about that in a minute. But when you're at Syracuse, Syracuse, and you're in sports in Syracuse, it's a broadcasting school. Look at all the guys who cut their teeth, gals too, in broadcasting. And you're thinking, yeah, I want to be in sports, but I want to do something different. Well, you know, it's funny. At Syracuse, I just wanted to be in the restaurant business and my mother wouldn't let me transfer over to Cornell. It's like, ah! <laughs> that's but funny. my roommate was the running back, you know, with Joe Morris. Yeah. Roommate. And that's why I learned a little bit about the sports business and what a professional athlete, a Division One athlete was going through, which was a tremendous learning experience that I really at that time didn't know the dividends that that was going to pay. I always tell people, you don't really ever know, you know, what you're doing and the kind of impact it's going to have later on. But generally, most things that you do, somehow they come around and they pay dividends. And those learning experiences always pay off. And that was true for me at Syracuse. You know, to be able to go to a school like that, I've never really been to a sports school. My high school had no sports. And to really learn how the business of sports kind of worked kind of got me going. But remember, in 1981, there really was no sports business. It wasn't a lot no. of sports business. Right. Going on. So, um, but you know who came to speak at Syracuse was George Steinbrenner. Uh, and I'm in the first row and, you know, and I developed a relationship with George later on 
But this is the first time I've ever seen George up close. I'm in the first row. I got my Yankee hat on. And he's just really pounding that this whole sports thing is a business. Right. And the way I run this stadium is like a business. And, I, and he just went on and on and on. So it kind of got me thinking. And it was the first time I had really heard that, that this whole sports thing is a business. Now I have to tell people, you know, this business thing is a sport. Yeah, I got to yeah. remind people this is a sport. Don't forget, because it's gone so much to the other side. Uh, but that's a whole another story. Well, but the one thing we have in common and, you know, the labor of love writing the book and 50 years ago when the only business that we had was to try to find some business law person and apply some sports facts to it. And somebody who wrote a, a classmate of mine, Bob Ruxin, said the only uh, reason you qualify as an agent is you have some poor schmuck who called you an agent. And so in 1987, the bio says, that you bamboozled somebody out of eight grand to start Signer Associates. No, it didn't say bamboozled. So how did how did that all start? Uh, I wish I had the eight grand. <laughs> it was four grand. Oh, and what sorry. happened is I, I was going to be part of this little sports. This agent was going to hire me to market his players. Yes. And when I got to his office, he told me he couldn't hire me. So I went home and I told my wife, I said, I think I got to take $4,000 out of the bank. And I bought a Mac Plus, a printer, and had a couple hundred dollars to spare. And the guy gave me a small little office in his office to use. And I was just marketing players. I was doing golf events, charity events. I was opening up fan mail, Rick. That was really my end. <laughs> I'd go to the players and say, what do you do with yeah. all your fan mail? They felt right. guilty about throwing it out. And I yeah. would say, you know, value. Value is what you could do that someone else can't do themselves. I found something I could value myself. I said, open up your mail. I'll find if there's some sick kids. If there's some business opportunities, and then I was I was doing Lawrence Taylor, Carl Banks, yeah. a whole bunch of players, and that got me closer to them. And then I'd find different opportunities in the mail, and I'd try to book them. You you didn't have to give equity to that guy that gave you that office space, did you? It was four hundred dollars a month. <laughs> All right, I'm well, still waiting for him to come back to me to say when I'm going to be part of the group. Yeah, well, listen, this is going to be nationally circulated, so don't answer the phone in the next couple of weeks <laughs> or months anyway. I think so, it was a big mistake. He, he kind of missed out on some talent, I'd like to think. But I love when people blow me off and throw me to the side because, you know, there's nothing like being the underdog. It just fires me up. Well, we've had conversations, full disclosure, we actually shared a parent company yes. uh, that bought my company, bought your company. And we can talk about that briefly, obviously. But the whole idea of uh, monetizing aspects of the sports business that nobody knew before was really kind of an interesting piece. You defined it and then defined it in a way where a large holding company would invest in that side of the business. So, you know, kudos to you. But when did you first realize after 87, when you were up and going, that you were onto something really, 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 really big? Well, there's a couple of moments of time. I mean, I've had my Jerry Maguire moments. I mean, you know, going out of business several times. But I think it was, you know, when you think about it, I, I just was always trying to maintain an 11-year-old mindset. And I was doing these appearances. And when I, when I bring a really cool photo or some helmets or some baseballs to sign, I saw the people go much more crazy about this item that the player would sign than they were on the athlete that they were meeting or the athlete doing a speech. So I knew there was something there. And I knew there was an important aspect of this whole uh, athlete, consumer, athlete, corporate person than just them meeting them. And, and so I was always a collector, always saved my ticket stubs, always saved all my old programs, all that stuff. So 
you know, I really just started putting together collectible lines of products to support my marketing stuff I would do with a business. They go to a trade show, we give away signed balls, or you'd have a sweepstakes. Um, and my first thing also was going to American Express. Now, I was very late to the game because I couldn't have enough money to get an Amex card, but I would get these statements and I'd see they'd be giving away finally this membership rewards program. And they were giving away like you get a free flight for X amount of points. I'm like, points for a flight? How about points for a signed baseball? Right? <laughs> right. And that yep. was a moment of time where I convinced American Express to redeem points for signed items. And one of the first items I did was a Muhammad Ali pair of gloves and a uh, Phil Rizzuto baseball. And we were burning hundreds of thousands of points. My wife was like, no one's ever doing that. I'm like, really? I said, people want what they can't get. And at that time, that was a really cool item to get. And that's when I knew that there was a real hunger and interest. If I could prove to them that what I was selling them was authentic and it was really well done. So I always put a lot of love into my brand. And obviously my name, now with Collectible Exchange, I'm not with Steiner, but my name always carries over. People know that what I'm going to do is going to be real. It's going to be creative. It's going to be a little bit different. And, and, and the authentication that goes along with my name is everything I've built over the years. That's the brand. But in the early days, when the Steiner brand uh, meant a lot to you and your wife, but not a lot to the world, uh, how did you fend off the forerunners of the ProServes, the CAAs, the IMGs, who figured it might be a good idea, but probably wanted to take you out, buy you out, then take you out. Yeah, not not really. I collaborated with them. I was more of a collaborator. I worked with those big guys, you know, figured out how to put an extension on to what they were doing. Remember what I was doing. And, you know, when you go around, I mean, most people, they want, you know, they, they, they love the glory, but they don't want to deal with the story. And, you know, this yeah. was work. There was no shortcut. You didn't just all of a sudden throw your name in an ad. You got a hundred grand. This was a lot of work. So they, 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 a lot of those big companies, the CAAs and the IMGs, enjoyed working with me because I was doing the right thing. It took away a problem that they had. And the problem they had was that there was a lot of fake stuff out there. Yeah. I had a really bona fide process that really made sense. And when I started doing the team deals, that really took it even further because I was coming up with more products, more ideas for the players to sign. It was in an organized way. And most importantly, they could trust me with their players because I was spending an enormous amount of time with them, knowing that I wasn't going to steal them and try to represent them. So representing the player wasn't something that crossed my mind. Yeah. And because I didn't do that, it enabled me to build a bigger trust with a lot of agents, knowing that I wasn't in to try to steal what was important then, which was the agent part. How hard was it to overcome the presumption that the industry itself is poisonous, toxic, tainted, uh, not for the faint of heart, uh, you know, kind of a BS industry. And here you are guaranteeing authenticity. How hard was it for you to do that? Really hard. I mean, yeah. I can't tell you. I mean, that door hit my butt on the way out. I can't tell you the rejections, uh, even at home I and mean, even friends, nobody understood what I was doing. Um, I go home, my wife's like, we're sending our kids to college and you gotta have a first line of baseball. <laughs> and, and it was really hard. People get their arms around it. And then it's just, a, it, it kind of boggles me even to this day. I just got so focused on what I felt, you know, the business could be, even though it was such a, it was kind of the business was just a hobby and it was a wreck at that. It wasn't even a good hobby because there's so much fake stuff and, you know, people just doing all kinds of crazy stuff all over. But I think for me, the, 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 you know, the real change of order was when I teamed up with 
you know, Derek Jeter and Eli right. Manning, Muhammad Ali teamed up with the Yankees, Notre Dame, Alabama. I mean, those were very big partnerships. I feel like people don't really understand the value of the P word, and that's partnerships. Yeah. So I was extremely careful about who I partnered up with, who I was connected to, because I knew that would the only way I could convince people that I was real and I was doing the right thing by who I'd be connected to. And I was lucky because Mickey Mantle was a big fan of mine, and he did a lot of stuff with me early on, along with Rizzuto, Ferrer, and Ford. That helped me get the ball rolling, too. Well, I'm name dropping. I don't mean the name. No, dropping. no, it's but true. you're you're name dropping. You're one of the only people in this industry that can name drop and really get away with it because it's not BS. So speaking of mantle, the the, the card just sold for twelve point six million. We just saw that uh, the Maradona Maradona hands of God nine point three, the Honus Wagner, which used to be the standard seven million, uh, the Ali Rumble in the Jungle for six point two. Um, collectibles under the right circumstances are still worth a hell of a lot of money, right? They are. And, and it's, it's now, it's now like when I would mention collectibles or an auction, people would start shivering. I think now people are a lot more comfortable with the category. They're more comfortable with auctions. They understand the proprietary aspect. I think the trading card part of this is also a little bit of a train wreck right now. Uh, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of cards out there. It's very difficult for the mainstream trading card to have a lot of validity and i tell people to be really careful about investing a lot of money in mainstream cards you think could be one day worth a lot of money there are some vintage vintage old old cards that will always be worth a lot of money you mentioned a few of them right there and there are a few others those cards will maintain value we know they're limited and they're very hard to get in good condition i worry about the modern day card business the way it's expanded We've already been through a phase of this debacle in the early 90s where people just bought crazy amounts of cards, pallets of cards, and they come to me now and they're worthless. Because, you know, my new company, people come to me with their stuff and I help them sell it. We have a true exchange. It's a marketplace. And I worry because people come to me with all these cards in the early 90s, which was the first big phase of like, wow, these cards are worth a lot. And they're almost worth nothing. And I feel like these last few years, the card companies completely overprinted. There's a lot of cards out there that look like they're worth a lot, but they're not. And then there's a lot of money you have to put into to get these cards evaluated, graded, and then hopefully sold. So the business is very complicated. I wouldn't, if anybody listening out there, jumping into the card business right now, if you don't really know what you're doing, you kind of be careful because it's, it's not a solid direction. I've never gone and told people to buy my stuff hoping they're going to get rich one day on it. A lot of the stuff that I've created over the years has done extremely well. There's some stuff that hasn't done, you know, it is what it is. You should buy the stuff because you love it and it's fun. And then hopefully some of it goes up and some of it maintains good value. Yeah. How about this for us old guys? I assume now you have to be a resident expert on NFTs and digital collectibles because that's the next step. So I'm talking to a lot of people who think, this card stuff's taking up space. It's wonderful to turn it all into digital stuff. And I said, you know, the sun is rising in the West. We're on a different planet. What's going on? What's going on? Well, it's early. You know, okay. it's early. So, um, you know, there's still a lot of cleaning up. And there's a lot of people that threw a lot of crap against the wall because, you know, a lot of people just love the hype. I'm surprised that some of the people that got into this and some of the crap that they threw against the wall and hopefully people didn't get scammed and schemed. Right. I do think it's going to be good for the collectible business when you get to an NFT and you do a one of one. 
So I, I love the yeah. idea of having this incredible collectible and it's an NFT. So now we can track it. You can make money after it sells because you're the original person who had it. I like that. I think that, you know, if you have a, give an example, like it was Paul O'Neill day last week and there's no more tickets. I, you know, I could see doing an NFT for yeah. $25. That's really cool. Very digitally creative. And that goes in my wallet because I was a big Paul O'Neill day. And then the original art from that ticket gets sold in an auction. And that's the NFT. I like that. I, I you know, I think the, the, the I think the, the answer to the, to the NFT question is going to be, yes, there's a digital experience. There's something that can be done there if it's done with good quality. But the real money is going to happen with the physical and probably happening through an auction or a specific price. And I think for high-end collectibles, that's a good play because we know high-end collectibles gets passed down, passed down. Imagine if Babe Ruth, all those balls he signed mm. back then, knowing he was the Bambino, or were NFTs, he'd be, his family would still be making money on the sale of those balls. Well, Brandon, as usual, gives us some amazing perspective on all of this as we enter the football season, even more memorabilia for us to discuss. How about the Sports Gaming Minute? It's a little bit different today. We usually talk about states that are approving gaming. How about the feds have made an airport arrest in a $22 million offshore sports betting ring? JFK, $22 million. A RICO case, we've heard about that. Here's another implication of it. Richard Sullivan. 70-year-old Antigua, Antigua native, taken into custody on August 20 for counts of money laundering and racketeering. He's alleged to be a principal in sports offshore. Arraigned in a New York district court the day after the arrest, only one of a handful on record for violating the UIGEA of 2006, which is a banking law against illegal sports book offshore operations. And the American Gaming Association repeatedly urged the Department of Justice to crack down even further. The four men allegedly took more than $22 million from their operation and laundered more than $10 million through checks and wire transfers tied to fake businesses. Bulk of Sullivan's alleged customers resided in Massachusetts, where sports betting had been completely legal into illegal until earlier this year. See how the interest and the example is probably made of this individual. That's your sports gaming minute. How about sports tech? Always very important and obviously a big deal for us as we move into the new football season. Swiss sports startup Coach Better scores about 2.7 million euros in its investment round. Team management, performance tracking, educational resource to amp up coaching skills and a team's performance. Platform offers communication features that connect coaches, players, and parents. The bottom line is it is a company that started across the pond but has a very significant long-term interest in generating some more dollars and some more data for teams and leagues in the future. That's your Sports Tech Minute. Finally, good sports, as we normally do. Jimmy Butler stars in a Ukraine charity match at the U.S. Open. Francis Tiafo, Carlos Alcaraz, and others in a wonderful event. The U.S. Open begins this week, but events like those inviting other athletes to participate in helping the, grain, uh, the, the game grow and bringing forces together, obviously a worthy cause. The Portland Thorns and Timbers hosting the annual Stand Together Week 15-plus different projects and groups 
for members of the community to volunteer with the timbers and the thorns. Uh, the Greek freak is investing in business ventures outside of basketball with his brothers, continuing to keep his family close and paid off so far. And just like Michael Jordan and others, he's an entrepreneur and a basketball player. Congress aims to preserve CFB stadiums with historical preservation money and infrastructure money, targeting the days of ancient Rome and the Colosseum and preserving modernized college football stadiums, essentially conserving Americana and a staple of this time period in American history. The Vegas GP hiring thousands of workers. That's the Grand Prix. It's happening in November. They're projecting 105,000 nightly attendees and even more. The event has even grown more and more, more philanthropy, more economic impact for the Vegas area. That's your Good Sports 5. We'd like to thank, obviously, Brandon Steiner for his expertise. would like to thank Callie Kazir and others for helping us put the show together. And also, even more important, we'd like to thank you all for listening and watching and joining us next time when we go on the record and we begin the NFL season in earnest. Speak with you soon.